Hebrews 12, 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. What do you do if, for example, you have uh, someone, a friend, who is contemplating making a foolish step with long-term consequences? Uh, think in human relationships. Uh, to begin with. Suppose you had a friend who was uh, going through a bad patch in his marriage. Uh, he's foolishly allowed his eye to wander. He's been seeing another woman. His wife does not know uh, about this yet. He's contemplating breaking the news and leaving her. What do you do? What do you say? Well, uh, you might warn him away from seeing that woman again. You might give to him the kind of ethical exhortation that we saw in the, the previous verses in our chapter we studied uh, last Sunday evening. We could uh, phrase it uh, in the same kind of way. Uh, see to it that you don't go near that woman again. See to it that you do whatever you can to restore your marriage relationship. See to it that you go to a marriage counsellor before things get any worse. And all these things might be helpful, these kind of ethical exhortations. But in the end, they may not provide the strong motivation that would drive uh, that friend to do something, to, to reclaim the situation. And so you might be wiser if you began by reminding your friend about just how blessed he is in his marriage. You would extol the graces of his wife and make sure that he, he realized how lucky he was to have someone uh, like that to love him. You would make a positive case for sticking together. And you would make a, a, a negative, uh, you would portray a negative picture in regard to the consequences of taking the, the very step that he is contemplating. You would point out that it would be irreversible. 
You would point out the righteous anger that would come his way. You would point out the folly of throwing away a marriage, a family, a reputation. You would point out that what took 20 years to build could be destroyed in 20 minutes. Now, that is kind of what the the writer to the Hebrews is doing here. Uh, He is seeking to to provide strong motivation uh, to dissuade them against the step of leaving behind Christ and the new covenant uh, in order to lapse back into uh, old covenant worship and to energize his readers into right action, he points to the huge privilege that they have in Christ, the huge privilege of new covenant worship, and to the enormously negative, the eternally negative consequences of reneging on their privileges. And it's a stirring piece of scripture. We have one of these uh, little uh, portrayals of, of What is happening when we worship the living God? And it is, as it were, pulling aside the curtain to let us behold something of the the reality of new covenant worship in all its transcendence and glory and its dynamism are being lifted up with Christ in the heavenly places uh, of the fact that we are already, in a way, enjoying that which will be ours at the end of the ages. So, let us all take this to heart. If you are sitting on the fence tonight, let it move you to closing in with Jesus Christ and knowing that you are right with God, that you will stand before the judge when he appears with joy and with confidence. And if you are a Christian, and I trust that you are, then let this expand our minds and thrill us as we see the the wonder of what it is that we are doing when we engage in worship. Let us see beyond the, the humble form of the everyday and see what is going on in the heavenly places when we draw near to God in Jesus' name. So we look first of all at the new covenant privilege and then new covenant accountability and then finally new covenant worship. In verses 18 to 24, the writer uh, sets up a contrast between two mountains. One is Mount Sinai, Uh, the mountain where God gave the law to Moses, and the other is Mount Zion. Uh, Mount Zion, uh, not meaning the the earthly Jerusalem, although uh, the the mount where Jerusalem was situated is referred to as Mount Zion, but Mount Zion uh, in terms of the heavenly dwelling of God. Now, what is the contrast that's going on here? What is the contrast that's being made between uh, Sinai and Zion? What are we supposed to uh, take from this? Well, probably sometimes it's simplest to, to begin saying what it's not. What it's not. Uh, first of all, it's not a contrast between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. 
I, I trust that there's none of us here tonight that would uh, think in terms of you know, the God of the Old Testament being a, a wrathful, judgmental God and the God of the New Testament being loving and uh, forgiving. Uh, that is a caricature that often is uh, portrayed uh, by unbelievers, but it's far from the reality of the, the Scriptures. That's not the contrast that's being made. Uh, neither is it a contrast between the experience of believers now and their experience in heaven. When the writer says, You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, uh, he's reflecting the idea that Christians right now have their citizenship in heaven. For you have been raised with Christ. Uh, so although there are features of what is being said here about appearing before Jesus the judge and our future, it's referring also to our present day reality. Uh, we right now have our citizenship in heaven. We right now are in the Spirit, joined with those who are already in the presence of God. So it's not a contrast between uh, what we have now and what we will have. This is, this is present possession for us as believers. And thirdly, uh, the contrast isn't between the Old Testament as providing a way of law and rule-keeping and then a revelation of the New Covenant being one of grace and forgiveness. Again, uh, that's a caricature. Uh, the Old Testament saints were not saved because they kept the law well. And the New Testament people are saved by grace. Faith alone has been the way throughout God's uh, sovereign uh, rule. Uh, Old Testament believers were saved because they believed the promise. Similarly, New Covenant believers are not absolved of the need to obey the law of God. We have far more in common than is sometimes Portrayed. What is the contrast then? Well, it's a contrast between two stages of God's plan. It's a contrast between the giving of the covenant's demands and the revelation of how the demands were met by Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Uh, with Mount Sinai, we have the giving of the law and the sacrificial system that pointed to better things. That's all good. But connected with that giving of the law, connected with the story in Exodus, is the tragedy of the, the non-arrival of Israel, of their wandering in the desert, and their coming under the judgment of God. And in contrast to that, there is the new and final word from God in his Son, who is now revealed as our priest. There is the end of wandering. There is the arrival in God's presence. So the contrast isn't between two different salvations, but between a salvation that uh, is only partly revealed and one that comes in the full blaze of revelation. What the writer is essentially doing uh, in this section is he's expanding on a warning that's been given already. Uh, back in uh, the beginning of chapter 2, uh, where... The message delivered by angels, i.e. the message that was given on Mount Sinai, believed to have been administered by angels, is contrasted with the message delivered through the Son. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. 
For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So let's consider this uh, passage and let's uh, see how it it magnifies our uh, appreciation of the blessedness of belonging to the true church of Jesus uh, by by contrasting it uh, to the, the limited, the more limited privilege that was that of the Old Testament uh, church. Because it is Old Testament church that we are uh, referring to. The, the word in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, which described the, the gathering at Sinai, was ecclesia, ecclesiastical, the word that we use from that, uh, the word that's translated church in the New Testament. The church in the wilderness. We're contrasting the the position of those that were in the church then with those who are in the church now. The old uh, gathered people uh, around Sinai uh, has its emphasis on that which was external, that was tangible, and also fearful, the fearful elements of it. Whereas the new covenant assembly Uh, is more inward and spiritual and joyful. And in making a contrast, there are seven aspects mentioned uh, of the old covenant worship at Sinai and seven aspects of new covenant worship. Um, They're they're not contrasts that can be matched up against one another, but it's it's more the kind of uh, composite force of the seven together contrasting with the others. What are these seven aspects then of the worship at Mount Sinai? First of all, uh, that at Mount Sinai was that which could be touched. Could be touched because obviously it was an earthly mountain. Uh, but at the same time, uh, to touch it was suicide. Exodus 19:12. whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. So it was a fearful thing. Yes, it was visible, it was tangible, but you dare not touch it was a blazing fire, Deuteronomy 4.11. The mountain burned with fire. And alternating with that, it was dark. There was darkness. There was gloom. Uh, there was a storm. There was the sound of a trumpet and a voice. Seven different aspects of the, the, the fearfulness of coming before God uh, as he delivered the law to them at Mount Sinai. Listen to how these seven components are brought together in Exodus 19. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. 
And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you did warn us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. No wonder it was a, an awesome and a terrifying experience. No wonder Moses said, I am trembling with fear. And what is being stressed uh, in the description of Old Covenant worship at Sinai is the transcendence of God, the, the fact that he is above us and beyond us, and the awesomeness of God, the terror of God. It's the kind of experience that Moses had, first of all, at the burning bush. Moses has this, this pull-push experience at the burning bush. He's pulled towards it. He's attracted to go and see. Because there's something wonderfully attractive and beckoning in the presence of God. God draws us to himself. And at the same time, God is fearsome. And God says, come no further. And take off your sandals because the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And now at Mount Sinai, Moses and the others are, as it were, seeing a, a mountain on fire. Here is the burning bush writ large. And they cannot come near. Uh, they, are, they are drawn near because God is going to speak to them. But at the same time, uh, there's this uh, message of repulsion. Stay away. You're unholy. You're unfit for my presence. It's as though uh, the whole mountain is surrounded with that, that police black and yellow uh, tape. You know that they surround uh, accident sites. Keep clear. Stay away. Keep out. And then... Uh, when the Lord gives the uh, instructions for the architecture of tabernacle and temple, the same message is being uh, given to the people that God wants people to come near to him, and yet it is a, a hazardous thing to come into the presence of God. And so the very uh, design of the tabernacle with its, its uh, uh, outer court where people can come and prepare their sacrifice, and then the, the holy place where the priests alone can go, and the holy of holies where the high priest alone can go, bearing the blood of sacrifice, and with the dreadful thought that uh, uh, he may be struck down, and so he has uh, bells on the, the, the base of his robe, assuring those outside that hear the bell, that he, yes, he is still alive. The hazard of the presence of God. And on the other hand, the New Testament uh, church uh, is portrayed as a spiritual gathering in which believers are caught up with the heavenly host, worshipping God in the heavenly Jerusalem. And so we've got this contrast with the, the tangible and the fearful in Sinai, seven contrasting aspects that belong to uh, the worship of Jesus' people. First, we've come uh, to, and in fact, we are citizens of, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, Mount Zion. 
the community of those who have drawn near to God. We have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Remember, uh, earlier on in Hebrews, uh, we uh, reminded in chapter 2, it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. Uh, No, it is to his Son. And we will reign with the Son. We will reign with Jesus. Angels are ministering spirits. We've come to thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Third, uh, we've come to the church of the firstborn, meaning believers who are privileged as firstborn heirs together with Christ Jesus, who is the, the supreme firstborn and the heir of all things. Fourth, we come to a judge who is God of all. He is God of the universe. He discerns all things. He judges righteously. And we might wonder, well, I don't want to come before a judge. How is that supposed to comfort me? But then you read the Psalms, and and some of the the, the later Psalms, uh, there's an exaltation, uh, the judgment of God. He comes to judge the world. He comes to judge the world in righteousness. And the the cry of God's people is that uh, we want to judge who will vindicate us. In this world, we have been misrepresented. And we've been downtrodden. And we need the judge. And we cry out to a judge who will come and who will set all things straight. And not only so, but a judge who has loved us to the extent of submitting to a false human judgment. That the curse of the law might be placed on him. Christ the judge will come. And he will vindicate us. Fifthly, it's the dwelling of the spirits of just men made perfect. Believers uh, before and after the time of Christ. Believers who are having their earthly pilgrimage behind them uh, now know that Jesus is not only the beginner of their faith but also its perfecter. They are waiting the great climax of history. They're waiting that point when they will be clothed with resurrection bodies until that happens our glorification is incomplete we're looking for uh, an embodied future these spirits of just men around the throne are looking forward with us to that and sixthly instead of Moses we have Jesus the mediator of a new covenant Uh, and a new covenant which seventhly is ratified by a blood that speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. Remember the story of Abel, how uh, Cain, uh, in a fit of rage, slays his brother Abel because his sacrifice was accepted. And the Lord says to Cain, Behold, your brother's blood cries out from the ground, cries out for retribution, cries out for vengeance. The blood of Jesus, our writer says, speaks of better things, speaks of mercy, speaks of atonement, speaks of the purging away of the guilt, the shame of sin. It speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. We have come to the atoning blood of Christ. Jesus has brought us worship which is better. He draws near And he brings near. 
He is the one revealed as priest who has laid down his life as the forever sacrifice. Calvary has quenched Sinai's flame. Calvary has revealed God's purpose. Uh, It's the, the next and necessary stage. Sinai could point to the need uh, to fulfill the law. Calvary shows us how that law would be fulfilled in the providing of Jesus, our Saviour. What an amazing picture of, of New Testament worship. And we have to, we have to try to appropriate that uh, in our, our own practice of worship. This is the dynamic of New Testament worship. That uh, it is uh, worship on a cosmic scale. We are drawing near to Jesus. We are drawing near to uh, those who have gone before, to the the church triumphant in heaven. We are one with them, in a sense, spiritually, in worship. Jesus is present in our midst. And he draws near as the judge judged in our place, no longer to condemn us, but to bring us peace and assurance that the, the law's demands have been fully met in him. He brings us comfort and intimacy. What an amazing privilege. Now, that brings with with it accountability. And it's interesting that the, the, the logic to which the writer to the Hebrews now moves is so very different from the logic of many 21st century evangelicals. The logic of of, uh, modern evangelicals so often to the newness of the new covenant is to transform Christianity into therapy, to refashion God uh, into someone who has set lower standards for his people, who's happy if anyone at all should come to him. And the writer's argument goes in the opposite direction. It's the same God who's spoken to us in the gospel. And therefore, if his word to us from earth from a mountain, was so serious that it brought uh, death and judgment to those who disobeyed, how much more serious it is to disobey him who now speaks to us from heaven, who has revealed to us the full extent of his love. What an awful thing to disregard that. At Sinai, the earth shook. The writer says, God will shake the earth once more. He will come in dreadful judgment and everything will be changed. When Jesus comes, creation will be renewed. Uh, This is something which all of us who love the environment are longing for. The renewal of everything that we see around us. When Jesus comes uh, to bring in that renewal. The writer quotes Haggai. Uh, who prophesied, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come. Uh, The writer to the Hebrews explains that the shaking of the earth is the removal of shakeable things, those things which are unreliable and permanent, uh, by which is meant the created order in its fallenness. So that what will remain uh, will be those things which are spiritual and permanent. Again, it's a glimpsing at uh, Romans 8. The 
agonizing of creation, the, the longing of creation for, for the return of the Christ, that they might be released from the bondage of frustration and brought into the liberty of the children of God, the renewal of creation. So much that we value and place emphasis on today is shakeable, isn't it? It's marked by transience, impermanence, health. So unreliable, isn't it? Wealth, bank accounts, our homes, our families, our careers, all of these things, they come under the category of things that are shaken. Last Wednesday, uh, in uh, central Southern California, uh, there was an earthquake, a largest earthquake uh, in California for 10 years. And nobody was injured in it, but 10 years, uh, no, back in 1989, uh, 30 years ago, uh, there was an earthquake which was only slightly bigger than the one last week. But it struck in a densely populated and very wealthy area in the San Francisco Bay. It killed 63 people, uh, 3,757 people uh, were injured, many of them caught up in the collapse of the Nimitz flyover. The quake shook the community. One newspaper headline went, Marina lifestyles crumble with buildings. The impermanence of what we hold dear. God will come again and will shake those things like our wealth, our safeguards, our security. And to the original readers, the message is clear. Amongst the things which will be shaken must certainly be the, the rituals of old covenant worship. Because they were designed to be replaced, to be superseded. They were shadows. They've been superseded by the one sacrifice of Jesus. Therefore, let them not go back to things that have become obsolete. And for us, let us not build our lives and uh, build up hopes on things which are impermanent, uh, which will be shaken and will disappear when Jesus returns again. But as we were thinking this morning, let us build our lives upon the rock, which is Christ Jesus. Let our lives be those which cannot be shaken at his return. When Jesus comes, many of the things which are held dear will be distant memories. They'll be as invisible and unreal as a mist dispersed by the sun. God speaks and through his voice he speaks in gospel days of peace and of better things but also warns of judgment and of the need to be ready. So therefore we are more accountable not less because of the privilege of coming near to God through Jesus Christ. He has spoken from heaven let us heed his voice. And that therefore begs the question, in Francis Schaeffer's words, Francis Schaeffer's words, how then should we live? How should we live in response to uh, God's act in Jesus? 
And that's what the writer turns to in the concluding two verses. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We are to worship God with thankfulness and with gratitude because we are receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have blessings which are eternal and indestructible and we have them in a world where so much uh, is shaken, so much is unreliable. In a world where marina lifestyles and lavish buildings will one day be shaken and will fall away. We have an inheritance that can never be destroyed. We've been brought into the family of the king. We have an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil or fade. And therefore, the response is not to be one of complacency. It's not to be one of pride, but one of humble gratitude and one of thankfulness. And that shapes our worship as New Covenant Christians. Let us worship in awe, for our God is awesome. Would we have expected the chapter to have finished with the words, Our God is a consuming fire? Sounds rather old covenant, doesn't it? The writer is reminding us that our God has not changed. He is majestic and holy, implacably opposed to all that is wicked and sinful. He is passionate for righteousness just as much as he was when fire lit up Mount Sinai. Therefore, though we glory in our intimacy with God, though the apex of redemptive privilege is indeed our sonship, let us not become natty and familiar with this great God. And let it neither uh, lead us to hide behind false piety somber hand ringing but let our worship be that which is fitting as a response to a God whose grace is astounding and whose presence is awesome. What is this worship? What is new covenant worship? Paul will speak of it in Romans 12. It's the offering on the altar of our lives as a sacrifice. All that we are our intellect, our physical strength, our passions, our enthusiasms, our devotion, our careers, our hobbies, our families, our friends, our hopes and our dreams. Brothers and sisters, these, all of these and more, are what we are called to offer the living God. And anything less is a betrayal of the great privilege of being counted as members of his family brought under the new covenant. May God bless to us his holy word. Amen.